Let's pray. Lord, again we're here. We want to hear from you. Please allow your spirit to speak through your word to our hearts that we might know you and obey you. For you are worthy. In Jesus' name, amen. Sometimes we watch movies that take us from scene to scene, character to character. There are flashbacks and flash forwards and sometimes certain characters meet other characters and we're trying to figure out what's the connection like what does that have to do with anything and and who are they and how's this all going to work out in the end and then at the end of the movie there's this climactic moment and everything comes together and all is revealed it all makes sense we have that moment of aha conflicts resolved tensions resolved the story kind of brought to its conclusion. Think of movies like The Usual Suspects or The Fugitive. I don't know, I'm probably dating myself with some of those, but I like those. There's something really important to know about the scriptures and about our God. He is a God who, as we saw briefly last week, has a plan, a perfect plan. And and though we get glimpses in Scripture and in history of what he is doing and what he's accomplishing, there will come a time, beloved, there will come a time when all of it is brought together that everything we have seen or experienced will make sense and it will all be made perfect. Last week, we began our series through Paul's letter to the Ephesians, and we found that Paul opened his letter, I said, with a bang. He opened it with worship and adoration, with what we call a benediction, maybe doxology. In fact, I told you that there were 202 words in one sentence, verses 3 through 14 of Ephesians 1, and they were all about praise and worship. And we looked at last week only one third or so of that one long sentence. And this week we're going to look at another third and then we're going to come back again next week and, and fill in some more blanks. What is it that we heard from Paul last week? Well, we heard that God is worthy of worship because he chose us. Unworthy, undeserving folks before the foundation of the world and because he predestined us paul said to adoption not only does god save us we said but he brings us into his very own family his his very own household but we also said that all of that that paul was laying out for us was for one reason alone he was telling us these things and he tells us there in verse 6 to the praise of his glorious grace remember it was to raise the banner high and to make clear god's grace his kindness towards sinners that's us his kindness towards sinners is glorious and it is free and it's undeserved and it should cause us to want to praise him paul was so amazed by the grace of god that we were just singing about He was so amazed that he could not keep silent. 
He was so overwhelmed by the reality that God called us for no reason other than his own great love that Paul just savors the thought and he declares it to us and he wants us to savor it too. We wretched sinners and rebels turned from enemy to friend. Actually, more than that, we were turned from enemy to family, not because of anything we've done, but all his doing. In last week's passage, Paul emphasized the distant past before the foundation of the world. This morning, he turns to the present and really the future. And again, he is going to highlight grace He's going to lift up this idea of of God pouring out his favor on us just because he is who he says that he is. You're going to notice an outline on the back of your bulletins. First, what we have in him. Second, what will happen in him. And then we're going to look at some encouraging implications to consider. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 through 10 Ephesians 1 7 through 10 as you're turning there it's on page 976 in the sanctuary Bibles you can grab a Bible from under the chair in front of you and turn there I'm going to ask to see if the sound team there's an echo in my ear I don't know if those monitors are left on maybe that's what it is but I'm just having I'm sorry I can't hear myself think so we'll I'm sure they'll get that straightened we're working on these things we'll get it straightened Ephesians 1, verses 7 through 10, page 976. Let's hear what God's word has to say. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Amen? Now, I know this is just a centerpiece. If you look back at verse 3 and on all the way to verse 14, there is a lot of wealth and riches here. But we're going to look at verses 7 through 10, and we're going to start with what we have in him look at verses 7 and 8 now i know that you can't see this in most english translations but in the original language verse 7 begins with the in him language actually in whom and verse 10 if you take a look at verse 10 it ends with those very same words in him in biblical studies we call this an inclusio It marks off these four verses as a section that go together. There's something that Paul is communicating to us in these four verses together. We've already seen this language in Ephesians 1 quite a bit in him. Look at verse 3. God blessed us in Christ. Verse 4. God chose us in him. Verse 6. God blessed us in the Beloved. And folks, this is a really important concept that Paul is laying out for us here. The concept that Paul is emphasizing here is one that he's going to get deeper into throughout the letter, but it is a concept that undergirds the entire Christian life. 
It undergirds our salvation entirely. It is called union with Christ. Union with Christ. That's what this in him language is all about. Christianity is all about union with Christ. As Christians, all the blessings that we have, all that Paul has been talking about and and will talk about, is ours only because we are united with Christ. What does that mean? Well, in some sense, beloved, it means that everything good is actually Christ's. Victory over sin, victory over death, righteousness, a deep relationship with the Father, justification, that all belongs to Christ, not us. It is only ours because we are tied to Him by grace through faith. Beloved, if we are outside of Him, those things don't belong to us and never could. This is something that Paul wants us to be clear on. Christ is all we have, but we have all in Him. One theologian defines it this way. He says union with Christ is that intimate, vital, and spiritual union between Christ and His people in virtue of which He is the source of their life and strength, of their blessedness and salvation. That sounds a lot like John chapter 15 where Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the what? Branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. Union with Christ. Union with Christ means that he is in us and we're in him. It means that his righteousness is accounted to us and our sins are accounted to him. And it means that he pays for those sins. That's what Paul is going to emphasize here. Union with Christ means that Jesus is our head and our representative. We are all under Jesus. Actually, when we are born, we are all under Adam. When we are reborn, we are now under Jesus. It's like working under another person's license, if you will. Our rights and our privileges are dependent on our connection to Him. We have nothing of our own to bring. So with that in our minds, look at verse 7. What is it that we have in Him? This is the now. This is what we have in the present. And Paul says, we have redemption through His blood. Redemption. What is redemption? Well, in order to understand what Paul wants us to understand about redemption, we have to think back to what Paul would be thinking about. The Old Testament Scriptures. And if we know anything at all about the Old Testament and this concept of redemption, we know this. God rescued Israel from slavery in Egypt. Right? And that became a defining event in their history. He redeemed them. In fact, the Lord calls them regularly to remember this moment so that they might both have gratitude and also obedience. It's part of their worship and it's part of their ethics and it's part of their identity. Beloved, if Israel were asked, who are you? Part of their response would be, we are those Yahweh rescued 
from slavery in Egypt. It was their identity. And because it was part of their identity, it was supposed to impact the way they lived. The Lord would look back at their redemption from, Israel, from Egypt and say, because of that redemption, live this way. So for instance, Deuteronomy 24, 18, the Lord is giving them laws about how to deal with the, the less fortunate in their midst, the, the less privileged, the orphans, the widows. And he says to them, but you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I command you to do this. What is that? Well, treat people well. The fatherless, the stranger, the sojourner. In fact, the language of redemption was given by the Lord even before he redeemed them from Egypt. In Exodus 6, 6, prophetically he says, say to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. He continues in that same passage, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. That's what redemption means. Redemption and belonging go together. He's buying us back. He redeemed them for himself, like what we talked about last week in election. From then on, the way the Lord identified himself, by the way, to the people of Israel, was often just this. I'm the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. He's the God of grace. What does that have to do with us as Christians? Well, Paul's using the very language of redemption that the Old Testament used. What redemption is for the Christian? Well, remember, Jesus himself says, that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to what? Serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. What's a ransom? If you've ever seen the movie, you know what's going on there. Kidnappers come, they take the child, and they say, we want a ransom so you can have the child back, so we can buy him back. A ransom is a, a price to free someone from captivity. It's the same root word as redemption. It's the same language regarding the freeing of slaves in the Roman culture that Paul would have known well. So as Paul wants to continue worshiping and adoring the Lord, he focuses in on this one aspect of the work of Christ that is ours right now. He says in him we have this thing called redemption. We've already been bought back by the blood of Jesus. We've been freed, delivered, released from whatever we were under. But what's that? What were we in captivity to? Beloved, this is part of our identity. We have to think about these things as God's people. The, the, the Israelites were those freed from Egypt. Who are Christians? Those freed from sin. Look how Paul clarifies that as he talks next about forgiveness from our trespasses. That, that's what we've been redeemed from, so we're no longer under the consequences of our sins. We're, we're no longer liable to the punishment that our sins required. We're, we're no longer slaves to sin. We're no longer in captivity to sin. Paul's going to go on to describe this further in another letters too. Not only are we freed from the consequences of sin, beloved, we are free from sin's dominion. 
In fact, we don't have to sin anymore. But before we look at the concept of forgiveness, there's something important to consider. I want to ask you this question. Do you understand the cost of your redemption? The cost of your forgiveness? If you're into recycling, you know that on the cans and bottles we see uh, California redemption value. Five cents. Man, that's cheap. Maybe sometimes, I, I read in some states it's 10 cents. Maybe we should go take it there. But The state wants to redeem those cans and bottles so that they might recycle them. So they, they offer really a ransom price. That's what they're doing. A redemption cost. Cost them five cents to redeem a bottle. Beloved, let me ask you this question. If there were a redemption stamp, a stamp of redemption value on us, what would it say? What's the redemption value of a sinner? Is it some good works to make up for the bad? Maybe a, a balance, a scale? If you do a little more good than the bad, then maybe that's, that's going to be what redeems you? Is it a little bit of bad karma for a little while just to make up for your sins and then it will be okay? Is it purgatory? What would it take to pay the debt we owe? Well, Paul tells us here in that verse 7, doesn't he? If there was a stamp of the redemption value, it would say, the death of Jesus, nothing less. Nothing less. That's what it took. That, that's what it cost. The death of the perfect one. The crucifixion of the one who had never done anything wrong not even a wrong thought. The unjust death of the righteous and compassionate Savior, the innocent one. In Him we have redemption through His what? Blood. And nothing less than that would do. Do you see why Paul is so amazed by grace? It costs us nothing. But it cost Jesus everything. And beloved, if nothing less than the blood of Jesus could redeem us, that needs to tell us something about the sinfulness of our sins that we so often continue to engage in. It should tell us something about our true spiritual status until we're in Christ. It should help us to see the horror of sin. And what we deserved and the sacrifice God made to provide grace. You know, recently my wife decided that she wanted to show our kids exactly how much life cost. Because they're spoiled, frankly, let's be honest. She showed them income and expenses and they were shocked at how expensive life is. They had no clue. Many of us probably still don't. Why show them these things? So they'd understand the value of what they have and they would be grateful. Beloved, the Lord is showing us the expense, the cost 
for us to have spiritual life rather than eternal damnation? Do we value what we have in him? Paul clearly did, and so he could not stop blessing him. He could not stop praising him. He could not stop adoring him. He could not stop saying enough things about the grace of God. What do we have in him? We have redemption, and related to this, we have forgiveness of our trespasses. Forgiveness is such an important theme, but one that our human weakness sometimes confuses. Forgiveness is tied to redemption. It's, the word actually has to do with release. We're free from what we were supposed to pay, from what we owed. But I know that sometimes when someone sins against us, we say that we forgive them, but there's a temptation. There's a temptation to bring it up again and again, isn't there? I know that there's a struggle in our hearts, especially if that person does the same thing again and again or, or something similar. And maybe we bring it up and we say, well, well, you always do this. Or you must not have been sorry. And so maybe we don't bring it up at all, but it's in the back of our minds and and we put up barriers and obstacles in those relationships. Maybe sometimes someone sins against us in such a heinous way that we don't think we can forgive them. Forgiveness that we have in Christ isn't like that at all. Please don't think of the forgiveness God gives to you like the fickle human forgiveness that we so often pretend to give to others. It is full release and complete freedom from our sins, any sins, ever counting against us again. As David wrote, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Every sin paid for. Something we owed, we owe no longer. It can never be held against us again. It's been paid in full, and we must stop and ask, how is that even possible? I don't know if you're like me, but when I think about how great my own sin is, and when I realize how much I continue to sin, even after knowing the love of God found in Christ, even while having the power of the Holy Spirit in me, having been redeemed from sins and even the dominion of sin, how is it that after I keep on sinning, how is it that I am forgiven won't his grace run out? Isn't there a point where he's going to be like, Jason, enough, man. It's too much. Here's what Paul says. In a different context, Romans 5.20, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. In verse 8 of Ephesians 1, our passage, he uses a related word. He says he lavished grace upon us in fact look at the verse there carefully the lord didn't just lavish grace upon us he lavished the riches of his grace upon us beloved i don't know if you've ever seen the movie aladdin since i'm talking about movies today and he goes into that mountainside and he sees all the riches and all of those that wealth and all that treasure and just think about that scene and each treasure part of the grace of God that overflows and will never run out. In Him, we have redemption. In Him, we have forgiveness. 
And it all comes from this treasure, this wealth of grace lavished upon us according to a wise and purposeful plan that is good. Our sins covered, removed, and dealt with free forever. But there's more to this grace. Look at verses 9 and 10. Not only do we have something now, but what's going to happen in him? I mentioned last week's passage went back to the past before the foundation of the world. Verses 7 and 8, scholars point out, is in the present tense. It has to do with what we have now. Verses 9 and 10 focus on our present awareness of the future. What do I mean? Look at those verses again. Part of the grace of God is that he reveals to us this mystery of his will. His mystery is revealed. What is a mystery? Well, biblically speaking, a mystery is is something that is hidden for a time, that is revealed at the right time. It's been there all along, but it hasn't been revealed yet, and it is being revealed slowly. The mystery, beloved, is the plan of God. Much of it has to do with how salvation works. The mystery of the gospel and types and shadows in the Old Testament clarified in the New, but there's more to the mystery of God, to the plan of God. How often we see things in the world that take place and we wonder, how does that make sense? How does that work with everything that we know about God? How can a good God allow this? How does a loving God permit this? How does all this really work together for good for those who love God and are called according to His purpose? Things that just don't seem to make sense. Why are there mosquitoes? I don't know. That that was one that came to mind. Paul here says that God's grace is making known to us the mystery of his will. He is giving his people more and more insight into what he is doing and why. Kind of like Jesus did with his disciples, right? For those on the outside, he speaks in parables. But for those who are inside, he explains the parables. His kindness toward us includes revealing secrets to us. You understand the gospel because of God's grace. You know the good news because God has revealed it to you and opened your eyes to see. A few things stand out to me. When I read what Paul's writing here, who do you share your plans with? Your most intimate plans and secrets? You share them with those you love and are close to. Here's what Paul is saying. God in Christ reveals his plans to us, his children. It's part of his love for us. It's, It's part of what makes us saints and holy ones separated from the world. In John 15, 15, listen to what Jesus says to his disciples. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I've called you friends. For all I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Isn't that awesome? We're we're friends of Christ through the Spirit in him. Part of the relationship we have with our God is that He is making known to us the mysteries of His world. And importantly, the good news in Christ and how He brings all things together. Look at verse 9. According to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. To Christians, 
through the Spirit, by grace through faith, we see reality that the world around us is blind to. We see things like the impact of the fall of man, the need of redemption, the power of sin, the greater power of God's grace, and that there is a time that is coming in which perfect righteousness and justice will reign. We see these things. We know these things. By God's grace, he's revealing these things to us. We see by the grace through the Spirit that though what our eyes behold may be limited, when the veil is pulled back, there is spiritual reality that is according to the purpose and plan of our sovereign God that no one else sees. We know today through the gospel that all the types and shadows of the Old Testament point to something far greater than themselves. The seed promised in Genesis 3 came in Christ. The promises made to Abraham came in Christ. The fulfillment of the sacrificial system of the Mosaic economy came in Christ. And the perfect hope of a righteous king like David to rule came and will come fully in Christ. But there's more to what Paul says here. Look at verse 10. As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. The word translated unite could be translated to sum up. It's a word that would be used to refer to what a lawyer does at the end of the trial, that he he brings all the evidence together, he brings it all to a head, and he presents it so it's clear. It's like a word we might use to describe the movies that I talked about earlier, when all the disparate parts and moments, inexplicable interactions, become clear in one final moment. Paul is saying that grace of God makes known to us that Christ is the head, the summary, the one under whom all things in heaven and on earth are ordered, and one day in him all things will find meaning. Whether death, disease, pain, suffering, confusion, angels, demons, spiritual beings, sin, righteousness, all of it will come under the headship of Christ and it will be made known. Philippians 2, Paul puts it this way. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In Colossians 1, 19 and 20, he puts it this way. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. One author says, stress is placed on the one in whom God's overarching purposes for the whole of the created order are included. The emphasis is now on a universe that is centered and united in Christ. Amazing. Another scholar adds, Christ will emerge as the 
organizing principle of all creation. And we are in him. Amazing. This leads to our third part. Encouraging implications. The one who has saved us, redeemed us, and forgiven us is the one under whom all things will bow. And we are in that Christ. And if that's true, what shall we fear? How can we be discouraged? How can we miss the joy? How can we not be encouraged? He is our head and all things find their place under his headship. Patience, brothers and sisters. Patience. A time will come. All things will find meaning and order one day in him. And we know him now and can make him known. All that seems unanswered will be answered. All that is paradox will be obvious. And our God, through His Spirit, already making known to us the mystery of His will, should cause us to want to pursue His Word more than ever as it opens our minds and our hearts to just how big and glorious and good He is. In Him we have redemption. In Him we have forgiveness. The mystery is revealed and everything makes sense and will make sense in Him alone. Let us worship, adore, and follow Him. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, there are times we come to a passage like this that has so much depth that I know that as Your servant trying to proclaim Your Word, I cannot possibly do it justice. I pray that your spirit would teach. Take your word and place it deep into our hearts, implant it deep within, that we might know what we have in you, Christ Jesus, and know what will come to be in you, and know that it is ours now and ours to pursue. You are worthy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.